0: You may be seated. We're embarking on a study of James, and I want to say a few things by way of introduction. I uh, preached something of an introductory sermon on James a couple weeks ago, but um, I want to uh, mention a few things here. This is uh, one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Matthew, perhaps the earliest, and then uh, James as a kind of follow-up to Matthew's gospel, heavily reliant on Matthew's gospel, I believe written by James the Apostle, brother of John and son of Zebedee, written to the diaspora, as he says in the opening verse. The uh, Jewish Christians who scattered away from Jerusalem in response to persecution after the martyrdom of Stephen uh, in Acts chapter 8. Uh, We know this letter has to be early because it's really before any Gentiles have started to come into the church in significant numbers. It doesn't deal with any of the Jew-Gentile issues that dominate so many of the other New Testament letters. In verse 1, James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This, I think, unmistakably implies that Jesus is divine. James is God's servant, and he is Jesus' servant, and so God and Jesus to serve one is to serve the other. Jesus is put on par with God and called Lord. In that context, it cannot mean anything other than uh, the deity of Jesus. Old Testament prophets, of course, were regularly called the servant of the Lord or servants of the Lord. Now, James is a servant of the Lord Jesus, just as those prophets of the Old Testament were spokesmen for the Lord, so James is a spokesman for the Lord Jesus. And of course he calls himself a servant because this is one of the great lessons he's learned from Jesus, particularly in Mark chapter 10 we see it. James has had to learn that true leaders are indeed servants. James also calls Jesus The Christ, and that's highly significant as well. It means that Jesus is the promised anointed one. The one God promised to send to save his people, that's Jesus. All those promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. He is the anointed king, the one who has come to deliver us from our sins. In a way, you could say the whole gospel is summarized by that title, Christ Given to Jesus, who now through his death and resurrection, James won't mention that explicitly, but I think it's implicit here, through his death and resurrection, he has rescued us from our sins and he now reigns as the Christ, as the King over all. And that opening verse, those opening words really set the context for the whole letter. The whole letter flows out of this Uh, opening statement that he's made about Jesus being on par with God and being the Christ. Uh, In light of this James also goes on to greet his audience. He says greetings. Now we might think of that as a rather generic opening and in some ways it is a common way to begin a letter. The word there, greetings could also be translated as joy to you. Something like that. Greetings to you. Joy to you. Cheers to you. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a friendly, happy way of saying hello. And that's very fitting because encouraging joy or cultivating joy, cultivating cheer, especially in the midst of hard times, is indeed one of the chief purposes of this letter as we are about to see. That word greetings is also a way of passing along grace. It's a way of saying grace to you. So joy to you, cheers to you, grace to you. It's a way of uh, of showing his bond, his goodwill uh, in this letter to those he is addressing. Now with those things in mind, let me read the first four verses of James. We will especially be looking at verses 2 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us today through this scripture, that we might count our trials joy and grow to maturity. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose servants we are. Amen. You know, one of the biggest problems in our culture today is what has been called helicopter parenting. Have you heard this expression, helicopter parenting? Parents who are overprotective, who hover over their children, who want to keep their children from experiencing any kind of pain or failure or adversity. They seek to shelter their children from anything that could go wrong, anything that might cause pain in the lives of their children. So they can't really tell their kids no. They coddle their kids, they spoil them, they indulge them, they give them what they want. And it's been pointed out, the result of this helicopter parenting is snowflake children. That's the label that's given to the kids, or the product of this parenting, snowflake children, because these kids are so fragile, They're so easily offended. They really can't handle adversity. They can't handle being uncomfortable. They can't handle being exposed to ideas they disagree with. When these kids grow up, this is why on college campuses, you often have to have safe spaces and trigger warnings, again, to protect these kids, to sort of bubble wrap these kids from experiencing anything that might make them the least bit uncomfortable. Because these kids have not been allowed to struggle, They remain weak, immature, infantile. Uh, Many of them are unable to handle the basic challenges of daily life. They're stressed out over things that really shouldn't cause that much anxiety. See, many parents have thought that by rescuing their children from hardship and protecting them from any kind of adversity, they're helping their kids. But actually they're hurting their kids. They're stunting the growth of their kids. They're making their kids uh, develop a sense of entitlement, thinking that they're owed, that they deserve an easy life. They're giving their kids a victim complex where they can always blame somebody else for anything that goes wrong in their life rather than taking responsibility for themselves. Kids who have been coddled and bubble-wrapped in this way all their lives never really develop any resilience or grit or toughness. Because pain and trial are necessary if we're going to grow. Kids have to learn how to stick with something even when it's hard. They have to develop shock absorbers in their lives, as it will. Shock absorbers so they can bounce back from the bumps that are there in the road of life. They need to learn to deal with failure, with rejection, with getting a bad grade, with getting left out. Those are all ordinary trials that happen in everyone's life sooner or later, but today's kids aren't really prepared to deal with them very often. They're not really prepared to deal with those kind of things because their parents have been so overprotective. Those parents have done their kids a real disservice. Their kids never really learn much confidence. Because how do you grow in confidence? You grow in confidence by doing hard things, learning how to do challenging things. They don't really develop character because character is very much the product of learning how to handle adversity. Jonathan Haidt, who has studied this and written a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, says people need adversity, setbacks, and perhaps even trauma to reach the highest levels of strength, fulfillment, and personal development. And so in a sense, those parents who won't let their kids struggle are cheating their kids out of maturity. This kind of coddling is at the root of a lot of the mental health crisis that we see with young people in our day. It's at the root of what's been called the Peter Pan syndrome of just extending adolescence where people don't really grow up. It's really at the root of all kinds of social ills we see all around us. Well, I have good news for you. I think you'll see it as good news. Your Heavenly Father is not a helicopter parent. Your Heavenly Father is going to let you fail. He's going to bring adversity and struggle into your life. He's going to let you go through trials. He's not a helicopter parent. He's not going to bubble wrap you. He's not going to overprotect you. He's going to let you face pressure and adversity. Life is tough. You need to be tougher. Life is full of struggle. You need to learn resilience. Life is full of hardship. You need to grow in grit and in persistence. Your struggles are ordained by God for a purpose. God wants to make you strong. God wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. And this is really what these verses in James 1 are about. James 1 tells us what God is doing in our trials and what we should do in response to those trials. In short, James says, God is building your character through trials, and so in response, you should rejoice in those trials. James says, Count your trials joy because they test your faith. And this testing of your faith produces endurance, which in turn leads to maturity, so you will be complete and whole, lacking nothing. Now what kinds of trials does James have in view? Well, I think really by trials here he means the hard stuff of life, any kind of difficulty that comes your way. Certainly these trials included persecution. For James' original audience, this might have been the main trial they were facing. Persecution from their unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters who were coming against them, as we uh, saw when I introduced this book. It's there in the book of Acts. Uh, It's interesting, we've got examples of early Christians, that is, Christians in the early church, counting the trial of persecution as joy. In places like Acts 5 where the apostles are persecuted by the Jewish Sanhedrin and they go away from this persecution rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They're just living out what we read in the Gospel lesson, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. But it's not just persecution for our faith, persecution for the sake of righteousness that is in view. It's all kinds of trials. James says, James speaks of various trials, various trials, diverse kinds of trials should be counted as joy. And so any kind of suffering God brings into your life. Romans 5, we also read this passage this morning. It's a good parallel passage. It's got the same truth, the same pattern. Romans 5 is clearly about suffering, the suffering we endure by virtue of living, seeking to live faithfully in a fallen world. And Paul says we glory or we rejoice in our tribulations. We rejoice in these tribulations knowing these tribulations produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. That's the exact same line of thought that you have in James chapter 1. Rejoicing in trials. Rejoicing in tribulations. Because they bring transformation. Paul elsewhere links suffering with joy. In fact, you find this constantly. Paul wrote a letter from prison. Imagine the walls of that Roman prison felt like they were closing in on Paul at times. But he writes to the Philippians and he says, Rejoice. I say it again. Rejoice. Paul's overflowing with joy. A joy that can't be contained by his prison cell. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he describes his ministry as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's a kind of joy that's compatible with grief, with sorrow, with pain. Peter talks about this as well in 1 Peter 1. He writes to his audience, he says, "Rejoice." even though you have been grieved by various trials. For those trials test your faith by fire so it is refined like precious gold. It's the same line of thought. Rejoice in trial because you see how God is working in this trial to purify you, to perfect you. Rejoice in trials because those trials that test you, strengthen you, that is a major theme in Scripture. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to uh, struggle to do this. That's not to say that we're going to always uh, fully understand what God is up to in the world or in our lives. To say that God works in the midst of our trials and this is something that He's doing is not to say that we've got a full explanation of, of, of any form of evil or suffering that uh, God allows to come into our lives. We're always going to have questions about God's purposes. There will always be a lot about God's purposes in the world that remain mysterious to us. Because God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are above our ways. And so we see tragedy in the world around us. We hear about a cancer diagnosis. Someone we love gets in a car wreck. We see a couple struggling with infertility. We know someone who has to live with chronic pain. And we ask, why, Lord? Why me? Why them? Why us? And the bottom line is, we're not going to have answers to all the questions we can raise about suffering in the world. Obviously, if there is a God, He's going to know things about what is best for us that we cannot know for ourselves, the same way a parent knows what's best for a child in ways the child can't understand. For us to question how God runs the universe would sort of be like a five-year-old questioning the calculations of a world-class rocket scientist. The five-year-old's just not going to get it. He's not going to be capable of understanding. It's beyond his comprehension. So much of what God does in the world around us is beyond our comprehension. It's interesting that suffering in the modern world has become an argument against the existence of God. This is a distinctly modern thing. In the ancient world, people did not argue that suffering was a reason for being an atheist. But especially after the Lisbon earthquake in 1755, secular philosophers went this direction, using the existence of evil as an argument for atheism, essentially. Now, there are all kinds of problems with that kind of argument. I'm not going to go into all of them, but um, one that I think is very obvious is simply this. If there is no God, there's no such thing as good or evil. So the atheist can't say, this is evil, therefore there is no God, because the very concept of evil depends upon there being a God. You don't have absolute good and evil. You might have preferences about what you like or dislike, but you don't have the categories of good and evil in any kind of absolute way unless you have an absolute and personal God who stands behind them. So suffering is not really something that the atheist can use as an objection to God. In an atheist world, suffering just is. It just is what it is. There's nothing more that can be said about it. It's not good or evil. It's just the way things are. So really, in a sense, I would say secularism has a much bigger problem of evil than the Christian faith because it can't even say that certain things are evil. But there's, there's another problem with the secular worldview that I think people need to recognize, and that is in a secular worldview, when it comes to suffering, the suffering always wins. Death always wins. The secular worldview gives no hope of overcoming suffering in the end. No amount of wealth or technology or political power can ever eradicate human suffering. And so in a secular world, suffering can't have any transcendent purpose. It just is what it is. And I would say this is one of the big reasons why our culture, uh, insofar as it is secular, our culture cannot produce people who know how to suffer well. Our culture does not produce people who know how to suffer well. Well, there's no why behind the what. And so secularists can complain about suffering, but they cannot explain its purpose. It's just bad luck or misfortune or chance. But in the end, pain is just a meaningless thing in a a meaningless universe. Uh, There's nothing more that you can really say about it. Now, James counters all of that. I don't think James is particularly interested in suffering as a philosophical question or a philosophical problem. I think he's much more interested in suffering as a kind of practical problem, as something the people he's writing to are actually enduring. But there is a philosophy, there is a worldview standing behind what he says about how we deal practically with our trials. James wants us to see that there is a good and faithful God who is active and who is involved in our suffering. He wants us to see this God is up to something good even in the midst of great evil. The evil is still really evil. But God is working it for good. God is using evil for His good purposes in our lives. And James wants us to see at least part of what God is doing in our trials is giving us the opportunity to grow if we will respond to those trials in the right way by continuing to trust in this good God. These trials will transform us if they drive us closer to God rather than driving us away from Him. And so that saying, bad times make good people, that's true for the believer. Or the saying of Nietzsche, that which does not kill us can only make us stronger. That's true for the believer. These trials really do strengthen us. These trials test our faith and as the testing takes place, our faith is refined like a furnace that purifying a metal. So trials purify our faith. What's left afterwards after the trial is a stronger, more mature faith. The same way pressure inside of a mountain squeezes carbon into a beautiful diamond. So the pressure of trials weighing upon us ultimately makes us radiant, And glorious and beautiful. But we need to understand it's not automatic. It's not like going through hard times automatically makes you a better person. Trials can make you or they can break you. They can grow you or they can destroy you. They won't leave you unchanged. But growth towards maturity, becoming a better person through your trials is not automatic. There are some people who experience trials and it turns them away from God. Their trials make them bitter and despairing. They don't turn towards God in the midst of trial, they run away from Him. Suffering changes them before the worst. and and, and I picture them as somebody who, you know, they're on board a train, and as soon as the train starts to go under a tunnel, they jump off the train. They don't trust the conductor anymore. Oh, it's dark in here. we got to jump off. Instead of recognizing there's light at the end of the tunnel, and if you just stay on the train, you're going to come out the other side. Their trials drive them from God. And that's why James gives us this teaching, so we won't respond to our trials in this way. Trials can transform us for the better, but in order to do so, we have to continue trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of God, despite the fact that God appears to be neither good nor faithful when we are in the midst of the trial. James wants us to know what we can't see with our own eyes. He wants us to trust what we can't see with our own eyes in the midst of a trial. That there is a purpose in our pain. There is a divine design that our suffering fits into. That this suffering is for our good. It's suffering unto glory. See, James is giving you a grid so you can properly interpret your trials. So you will see them not as signs that your Father has abandoned you or left you as an orphan, but that you have a loving Father who is disciplining you and strengthening you and growing you the same way a coach pushes his players to the limit to make them stronger. So our Father is strengthening us by putting us through these trials. James tells us these trials are for our good and so we should rejoice in them. You know, God can use trials in all kinds of ways in our lives. And we start to ask, well, how does God use trials in our lives? What are some of the ways that God works in the midst of suffering? Well, certainly God can use trials to awaken a Christian who's gotten lazy, who's gotten indifferent in his faith, who perhaps has started to drift from the faith, maybe in his affluence and in his comfort, he's forgotten his need for God, his dependence upon God. C.S. Lewis says God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. Lewis says pain is God's megaphone to rouse us. Trials that come into your life can be like smelling salts that jar you into action, that wake you up, that remind you of what's most important. Our trials can benefit us in all kinds of ways. We need to consider the benefits of our trials when we're in the midst of them. You know, Again, it's that saying, bad times make good people. Well, okay, how? How do we respond to our trials? How we respond, how we react to our trials says a lot about us. Our reaction reveals our basic orientation to life, our philosophy of life, our priorities in life. How you respond to trials in your life can expose idols in your life. God can use those trials, the the, the suffering that He puts you through, to humble you, to teach you to depend on Him in new ways. Suffering in a way can pull the blinders off so you see things that you otherwise would miss. God has designed life to break us to challenge us, to test us. Life is a fiery furnace. It is an obstacle course. It is not supposed to be easy all the time. This is hard for Americans because as Americans we're kind of programmed to expect an easy life, and I would say even for American Christians. We're not accustomed to suffering. We do live by historical standards. We live relatively affluent, easy, comfortable lives. And so we don't really expect to suffer. It's easy for us to get a sense of entitlement as if we were owed an easy life, a suffering-free existence. And then when suffering happens, it comes as a shock and we're really not ready for it. And, And I think this is not just out there in our culture. I think it's in here in the church. It is very easy for us to be lulled into a kind of complacence where we make comfort a higher goal than maturity. Francis Schaeffer talked about personal peace and affluence. Becoming kind of the goals, the things that we live for. And we start to live for our own comfort instead of living in order to grow, in order to mature, in order to become more like Christ. In fact, it's easy for us to to fall into thinking that this is God's highest goal, that God's highest goal must be our happiness, that God exists to serve our agenda and to fulfill our needs and desires. But that's not God's ultimate goal. That's not God's program. God's agenda aims at your holiness. Now, yes, God will make you happy too. God does want you to be happy. But He wants it to be a holy happiness. And that's why you have to suffer a lot of unhappiness in order to get there. Suffering is necessary to growth. And God will often use trials to expose weaknesses or immaturities in our faith so we can repent and rise above those weaknesses and immaturities so we can move beyond them. You don't really know what you're made of. You don't know how strong or how resilient you are. You don't know how mature you are in your faith until you have endured great testing, until you have endured great trial. Understand what James is saying here. God uses suffering to shape us. God uses suffering to refine our priorities in life, to reveal to us and remind us of what is truly important. God uses suffering to show you what you can really count on. You are a block of marble. And God is the sculptor. And everything He brings into your life is the chisel. You're a block of wood. God is the carpenter. And all the trials God brings into your life are the sandpaper He's using to file down your rough spots, to smooth you out, to to shape you and mold you. Think about trials in terms of relationships. You know, when you go through a trial, sometimes the trial is the relationship with somebody. Losing relationships with other people can be part of our suffering. Or difficult relationships can be part of our suffering, part of our pain. But you know, going through suffering can also strengthen relationships. Sometimes we emerge from a trial with new friendships or deeper friendships. Others come to our aid. And our bond with them is, is forged in the fires of affliction and it's deepened and it's strengthened. And of course, if others are going through the same trial with us, it's a trial we have in common, the suffering can strengthen community, can strengthen that relationship even more. It's really the whole notion of a band of brothers. The whole notion of a band of brothers comes from this. Men who suffer together on the front lines of the battlefield form the strongest friendships possible. You know, if, you, if you read an account, say, uh, a book like All Quiet on the Western Front about the soldiers who were in the trenches during World War One, you see this. The, the closest possible human friendships are formed there through shared affliction. Shared trial, going through hard times together can bond us in the way nothing else can. That's one good thing, one benefit God can bring out of your suffering. Of course, the most important relationship strengthened through our suffering is our relationship with God Himself. And this is because God is with us in the midst of our suffering. Suffering does not mean God has abandoned you. In fact, God is suffering with you when you suffer. In some way, Christ suffers when His people suffer. God is grieved in our grief. He hurts when we hurt. You know, the Bible's filled with saints who cried out to God in the midst of their pain. Why? And God does not denounce those cries even if He does not always answer them. God does not reject the question. It's not a bad question. When what God has promised and your life seem to be in contradiction, it's not bad to ask God why. We're going to cry out to God why. And we may not get an answer to that question, not a full answer, but what we can know is this, that God in Christ is suffering with us. God in Christ is the wounded God, the God who suffers with us, indeed who has suffered for us, And now, as Paul says, our sufferings are a way of fellowshipping in His sufferings. So that through our suffering, we come to know Christ better, more deeply. Indeed, through our sufferings, as we fellowship with Christ and His sufferings, we become more like Christ. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story, a tragic story really, of a young Christian woman uh, who uh, was diagnosed with cancerous growths Behind her eyes. And she had a great struggle. Her life uh, ended, humanly speaking, prematurely. But this is what she said about it towards the very end of her struggle. She said, I would not part with everything that has come out of these last five years for anything. I wouldn't trade it. I could choose to be grumpy about the cancer, which I do many days. But I cannot ignore all the blessings that have come through it. I don't want to mislead anyone and have myself raised up as a model of Christian faith. I often struggle in my relationship with God. I'm gripped with fears of dying. I've wept before God, pleaded with Him, demanded healing from Him, cursed Him, and tried to bargain with Him. I've suffered through many bleak periods in which I felt like a mere dishrag in the hands of God to be discarded after use. But God has all along hemmed me in on every side. She goes on, she says, God has remained faithful. I did not understand what God was doing and I don't claim fully to now, but I did know that what was happening was under His control and what becomes ever clearer to me is that far from punishing me, He has blessed me. And whenever God does call me home, which happened shortly after she said these things, whenever God does call me home, I want people to understand that my life was not too short. She experienced the blessing of God. She came to know God in ways she never could have without the suffering she went through. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, you may know her story. Her husband, Jim Elliot, who was uh, slaughtered by missionaries in South America. Uh, She says that through her husband's martyrdom, she learned this indispensable truth. God is God. She explains how God drew her into a deeper relationship with Himself through her trial. She learned how to depend on God and trust God in new ways she never could have otherwise had her life not involved that suffering. You need to know God does not inflict needless suffering. You will not suffer any more than God has ordained, any more than God has designed for you to in order to make you like His Son. Your suffering is not wasted. It serves a good purpose. Your suffering is not an accident. In fact, it's a gift. Really, it's a vocation. This is what Christians have to say that's so crazy in the eyes of the world, but it's true. Your trials are part of God's calling for you. If you're a Christian, you don't just get cancer, you're called to cancer. You're called to that particular form of suffering. You don't just get a tyrannical boss. You're called to that position, to endure that kind of tyranny. It's a calling God's placed on your life. James says the purpose of these trials is to test our faith. You know, so much in the, uh, the book of James is taken up with distinguishing true faith from false faith. And James says, when test of your faith is how you respond to trials, how you handle trials, whether you'll stand firm, and if so, that proves that your faith is the real thing, or whether you'll fall away, in which case your faith is not the real thing. Genuine faith will withstand trials and persevere. And one of the things that supports us in our perseverance is recognizing this truth, how God is at work in these trials. James goes on. Again, he says the testing of our faith produces patience. Actually, I think a better word there is endurance or steadfastness. We learn toughness through trials is what James is saying. And this steadfast endurance then leads to perfection. It leads to maturity. Now, perfection is a major theme in this letter. We're going to see it come up again and again in James. Really, that word perfection could better be read as maturity. That's really what it's about. That's the goal. That's the aim. Maturity. What does it mean to mature in faith? Well, this maturity manifests itself in many ways. When James says the testing of your faith will lead you ultimately to maturity, what does he mean? Well, think about different ways in which maturity is seen in God's people. Jesus talked about this kind of perfection or maturity in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, be perfect or be mature as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in that context, being perfect or being mature has to do with loving your enemies. God loves His enemies. We should love our enemies as well. So for example, if your trial stems from persecutions for your faith, one lesson God wants you to learn is how to love and pray for your persecutors. You'll become perfect, you'll become mature when you're able to forgive your enemies. There's a great joy in that kind of thing, in that kind of maturation, being able to forgive those who have wronged you in some way. Jonathan Edwards, uh, of course, was probably the most famous pastor in Puritan New England, but he was fired from his church at one point, wrongfully fired. He was persecuted, as it were, by enemies in his own congregation. And at the meeting where, the council meeting where, uh, where he was told he would be fired, this is how one man described Edwards' response. He says, Edwards received the shock unshaken. He seemed like a man whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. He had a happiness out of reach of his enemies that his enemies couldn't touch. And it was that kind of joy, that kind of happiness, even in the midst of great trial, that allowed Edwards to love those who had wronged him and to forgive them for what they had done to him. So certainly that's part of it. This maturation, being whole and complete, means forgiving those who wrong you. But there's something else we associate maturity with, and that is, of course, wisdom. And we're going to talk a lot more about wisdom as we go through James, the very next verses even talk about asking for wisdom. That too is a major theme in James. But we can say several things here. When we respond to trials obediently, we grow. We grow to maturity. And that maturation includes growing in wisdom. People who have not suffered very much tend to remain naive and immature they have a thin understanding of what life is about. This is why we don't really expect young people to have a lot of wisdom because they haven't really experienced very many trials yet. But those who have been seasoned by the trials of life, we expect them to have grown in wisdom. You have to be wounded. You have to be weakened. You have to be made vulnerable in order to grow in wisdom. But people who dodge suffering every time they can, people who always take the easy way out, remain shallow. They remain foolish. They're naive about human life. They're unaware of their own strengths and weaknesses. There's that great line in Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan says, Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. And this is so often how we are. Trying to do all we can to pursue comfort and avoid pain. And we end up missing out on the good things God would have for us in the midst of trial. If you never do anything hard or challenging or risky, you miss out on maturity. You miss out on growing in wisdom. People who have not known sadness and hardship are not yet mature. There are people who have been through great hardship and have remained faithful they are the ones who are the most mature who are the wisest you know the people with the best counsel the people with the best advice are oftentimes the people who have endured the most suffering in the course of their life second corinthians 1 even talks about this how those who have suffered have been comforted with the comfort of god and now can share that comfort with others who are going through similar Tribulations And that comfort, that word for comfort, really includes passing along counsel. Passing along wisdom. You gain wisdom through remaining faithful in the midst of trial. Yeah, I know one pastor who put it this way he said, if you ever meet someone who is wise, you should ask him what kinds of trials he's been through. Because you can be assured he's been through a lot. Your suffering achieves what your safety never could, a life of wisdom. Don't aim at comfort. Aim at maturity. Aim at wisdom. Charles Spurgeon once said, many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. They became great men. Wise men. Men we would respect and look up to precisely because they endured so many struggles. C.S. Lewis says, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Your hardships, your trials prepare you in all kinds of ways to do greater things in the future. So, when you face trials, what do you do? James would say, lean into them. Lean hard. Count them as joy. Not because you're celebrating pain or suffering in themselves, but because you know the pain and the suffering serve a purpose. That the trials will lead to transformation. Don't start to feel sorry for yourself. Don't adopt a victim mentality. As Gandalf once said, again, lots of quotes this morning, but Gandalf, not all tears are evil. When you look at the world through the tears Of your trials, you see new things. Your trials are ultimately paving the way to glory. Look through your tears to the goodness of God. If you're in the midst of a trial right now, you may be wondering what in the world could God be doing? But no, you live in a story authored by God Himself. And you may not like the chapter you're in right now, but you're going to love the box set when it's all done. Because I can guarantee you that story, when it's all finished, it's going to be glorious and it's going to have a happy ending. And the ending will be all the happier for the dark chapters along the way. And so when you're in the midst of trial, what do you do? Do what Joseph did in the book of Genesis. Trust God in the pit. Do what Paul did in the book of Acts. Trust God in the prison cell. Do what Jesus did. Trust God even on the cross. Don't just go through troubles. Grow through your troubles. Know that God is at work in them. If you're suffering right now, take James' teaching to heart. And you know, if you're not suffering right now, maybe you think life's pretty good. You're not experiencing any great trial. Well, no, your trials are coming. And so prepare yourself for them now. The testing of your faith may be a pop quiz. It may come up unexpectedly. But it will happen. You're going to suffer. You're going to be tested. You know, coaches like to say that championships are won in the off-season. That's when you really put in the hard work that makes you a champion when the season rolls around. That's what we Christians have to do too. In times of prosperity, we have to prepare ourselves for adversity. So learn your theology now. It's a lot harder to learn the theology you need in the furnace. Learn it before you're put in. Learn those habits of obedience that will serve you well when hard times come. Don't be surprised or caught off guard when the fiery trials hit you. Know they are a part of life for everyone. God calls you to them. Therefore, you're good. If you're in a time of prosperity, don't assume it's just going to always be this way. Lay a foundation so you can stand firm when the hard times come. Count your trials joy because through these trials, God works to transform us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You use trials, yes, certainly to reveal our character, but also to build our character, to transform our character. Oh, Father, we thank You that You are good and wise. We thank You that You do not protect us from anything that might make us more like Jesus. We thank You, Father, for not coddling us, but for allowing us to go through adversity and trial and pain, knowing You use these as instruments in our lives to grow us. So may our suffering be a pathway to a better place, to greater maturity, to greater wisdom. Would You do these things in our lives? This we pray. In the name of the One who suffered for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.